Mark 15, starting at verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. pray. Heavenly Father, these are amazing words that we've just read together. And our prayer is that you would help us, like that centurion who heard and saw what happened that first Easter, that, that you would help us to see the truth of who the Lord Jesus really is, the tr truth of what really happened that first Good Friday. How we need your help, please. Please speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you can remember what you were doing on the 12th of March, 2003 at 12.23 p.m. No. Uh, it's it, I guess for some of you here, that's you weren't even around then, but uh, so I've shown my age a bit here. Um, but that's a date that's imprinted in my memory. I know exactly where I was. I was just coming into land, actually, in Belgrade, in Serbia. I was working for a, a Christian charity that worked with students in, in Europe, and I travelled a lot in, in that job. Um, usually I travelled with the rest of my team, um, but this time I was on my own, just me going to a conference and going to some meetings and, uh, and that kind of thing. And um, we circled around a little bit, which was a little bit weird, but we eventually landed and I got off the plane and I kind of picked up my bags, headed out into the airport. And I noticed that on the, you know, the sort of display boards that say what, where you get your flights and all that sort of thing. I noticed that one or two of them were canceled. And I thought, oh, that's a bit weird. And then I looked again and actually, all of the flights everywhere were all cancelled. Um, that's, that's a bit weird. And then I started to notice um, policemen with machine guns and soldiers everywhere. Um, and there was no sign of Samuel who was coming to pick me up. Um, it's not unusual for him to get times and things like that wrong. But, um, <laughs> but, but in, in this instance, something major had had happened and so I just had to wait so I just kind of sat there watching soldiers and uh, eventually Samuel was able to get through and pick me up and he told me that um, Zoran Jinjic who was the um, prime minister had been assassinated at uh, 12 23 
is a picture of him. Um, an ex-military sniper had taken him out one shot straight to his heart and he died pretty much instantly. Um, and so Belgrade, as I arrived there, was in lockdown, slightly chaotic. And Zoran Djindjic had a doctorate in philosophy. He was articulate, he was smart. He'd been instrumental in bringing his predecessor, Slobodan Milosevic, to face trial at The Hague for, for war crimes and for genocide in, against the Kosovans. He was committed to bringing an end to corruption, to taking on organized crime in his country. He'd recently set up a, a task force and a kind of witness protection scheme to, to make that happen. And that's why he was killed. Despite previous attempts on his life, he was committed to staying in his country, to fulfilling his job and not to be bullied. <coughs> But what I remember most about that time was the palpable loss of hope that there was amongst the students that I met up with then. For them, Jinjic represented the future of Serbia as it was emerging from all the troubles and the war that, that had been going on. He was, he was deeply respected internationally. He'd even been Time Magazine most influential politician. He was bringing closer ties to the West and the rest of Europe. And for lots of Serbs, that meant prosperity and, and hope. And now all that was gone as he was gunned down. So what now was the question these this students that I was meeting with were, were asking. Their hopes had been dashed with this tragic killing. What a waste. Think what could have happened, what he could have done. Well, I wonder the death 2000 years later of a carpenter from Nazareth called Jesus. There have been many over the centuries who perhaps thought similar things. What a waste his death was. What a tragedy. Think of what he could have gone on to do. Think of the people he could have healed, the teaching he could have given. Was his death just a tragic waste, an accident of history, hope extinguished? Well, as you read through Mark's gospel, and in particular Mark's account of, of that first Easter, some of the things we've already read this afternoon, you get the overwhelming sense that Jesus is the only one who is not acting out of fear. Everyone else is desperate to be in control, be it the Jewish teachers, be it Pilate. Jesus is the only one who is not ruled by fear. Actually, he's in complete control of all that's going on. And perhaps where you and I would be desperately seeking to do whatever we could to try and escape what's coming, Jesus is quiet. Jesus is in control. Jesus fulfills prophecy from Isaiah hundreds of years prior. He's, he's silent, he's numbered with the transgressors. He knows what's happening, but more than that, he's choosing what's happening. And in, this, uh, in these few verses in, in Mark 15, verse 39, 
is in many ways the climax of Mark's gospel. Have a look at verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So this centurion, he's a, he'd be a pretty hard guy, a pretty hard-bitten professional killer. He'd have seen countless deaths in his time. Crucifixions would have been a run-of-the-mill occurrence for him. But yet, as he listens and watches and sees what happens that first Easter, he is blown away by it. There is something different about this death, this day, that changes everything for him. Surely this man was the son of God, he says. Actually, in um, Roman circles, son of God was the, a word that would have been reserved for, for Caesar. But for this centurion, as he looks at the Lord Jesus and sees how he dies, he says, surely this man was the son of God. So the question for us this afternoon is, is, is what's so extraordinary? What's, what's so extraordinary about this death, that first Easter time? And what does it mean for us? Well, Mark gives us um, two signposts in verses 33 to 39. And uh, we're going to think about those two signposts and what they show us about Jesus's death. And he shows us two implications as well. So here's the first signpost. Darkness in the middle of the day. Darkness in the middle of the day. Have a look at verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So from midday till 3 p.m., complete darkness. And we can't explain that away as some kind of solar eclipse because astronomers amongst us here will tell us solar eclipse, well, they're seconds, minutes, not three hours. Now, some people have said, oh, perhaps it was kind of sandstorms that um, flared up and obscured the sun for that big chunk of time. Um, and sure, it's kind of common enough in that land, but not perhaps at this time of year. We know it's Passover. That would have been the wet season. So unlikely that it's something like that going on. Rather, what Mark is, is showing to us, there is something supernatural going on. And so these signposts here are pointing to, to, to the deeper reality beyond what's, what's happening just on face value. So what does it mean? Darkness in the middle of the day. What does darkness symbolize? in the Old Testament, in, in the rest of the Bible. Well, often in the Old Testament, darkness symbolizes judgment, God's anger at sin. There's a couple of examples. Think back to the Exodus, uh, the book of Exodus, as, as God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. There's a series of, of 10 plagues, 10 signs, of judgment from the Lord against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians. The ninth of those is darkness. Three days of pitch black darkness where you can't even see your hand in, your face, in front of your face. 
So darkness, <coughs> symbolic of, of, of judgment and of God's anger at sin. I have a look at this in, in uh, Amos chapter 8, verse 9. In the context of God talking about his uh, judgment, again, judgment against sin, against the sin of his people in particular. Amos 8, verse 9. He says that in, the, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That's striking, isn't it? So do you see the connections that Mark is wanting to draw out? What's going on here as Jesus dies on the cross is that God is pouring out his judgment. On, on who? Well, notice especially what Jesus says. <coughs> notice how Jesus understands what's going on. Have a look at verse 34. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So just think about all that's happened to Jesus so far. He's been disowned by his own people. The crowd that days earlier welcomed him into Jerusalem with palm branches now have been shouting for him to be killed. He's been disowned by his people. He's been unjustly tried and convicted by a cowardly judge. He's been abandoned by his closest friends. He's had six hours of brutal torture and, and humiliation. But what does he cry out? My friends, my friends, why have you abandoned me? Justice, justice. Why is there no justice for me? No. My God. My God. It's not the emotional suffering or the excruciating physical pain and suffering, but the spiritual suffering and agony. Being forsaken by his father, that, that is the thing that is hardest to bear for Jesus as he dies on the cross. God the Father is, is pouring out his wrath and his judgment on sin on his own son. That's the deeper reality of, of what's going on here. And the extraordinary truth is that he is there in, in our place as, as our substitute. Back in the Exodus story, back in Egypt, after the plague of darkness came the plague of the death of the firstborn sons. If you know the story, you'll know that those who sacrificed the lamb and, and, and smeared its blood over the doorposts were, were saved as the angel of death passed over. Fast forward hundreds of years later, he is a firstborn son dying as a sacrificial lamb at the time of the Passover. So the first signpost telling us what's going on is darkness, showing that God is judging sin. The second signpost help us understand further what's, what's really going on. The second signpost is a curtain in the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. Now, by all accounts, this curtain was huge. Um, as tall as a house and as kind of thick as a forearm, huge. 
here's a picture of it of somebody's artistic impression of it at the very least this curtain was was huge and it functioned as essentially a great big no entry sign separating everyone from the from the most holy place in the temple one man once a year after a whole bunch of rituals and cleansing and sacrifices could go through But the moment Jesus dies, this great big no entry sign, the curtain is, is torn into from top to bottom, symbolizing who's, who's doing what. The way is now open. Mark, Mark is, is, is showing this. And in the Gospel of John, John tells us Jesus' final words as, his die, as he died, a loud cry, it is finished. A cry of of victory and, and triumph. It is done. I've completed the task that I came to do. He's taken the punishment, the judgment that we deserve for our sin. And so now for us, trusting in him, the way is open for us to come and draw near to God. This is an accident or a tragic mistake. <coughs> Rather, this is the plan right from the beginning. <coughs> so what are the implications for us? Here's two implications for us as we reflect on these signposts that Mark sets out for us. The first one is this. The cross shows us how seriously God takes sin. The cross shows us how seriously God takes sin. And this is the point of the gospel, where the gospel jars most of all with, with our human nature, with society as a whole, and the way we, we see ourselves. All too easily, we can come to believe in our hearts that as long as we are sort of less bad than others, then the, the little sins that we do aren't really that important. At least we're not as bad as that, we can think, as we kind of sit in our armchairs watching the news. And our <coughs> self-confidence is, is boosted. Our, the kind of picture of what the Bible sets out about sin is slightly blurred and the sinfulness of sin is downplayed and then ignored and, and then forgotten. And that's true in, in our own lives, and that's true in society as a whole. We live in a society that just does not face up to the reality of sin either. Sin is rebranded as, as lifestyle choices. It can't be wrong to do what feels right. The most important thing is for us to, to be true to ourselves. And uh, we're just basically all good. That's what our society tells us the cross of christ forces us to face up to the reality of sin to think that it's not really a big deal isn't just isn't an option really is it can't god just sort of ignore it sweep it under the carpet forget about it if there was any other way for god to deal with our sin surely he would have chosen it wouldn't he he wouldn't have given his son 
to suffer in the extraordinary way that he did. If there was any other way to deal with sin, it was precisely because it was the only way that Jesus came and did what he had to do. The Bible is, actually, is, is uncompromising in how it depicts the reality of, of our sin. A stubborn rebellion against God's rightful authority. It's breaking his holy laws. It's perverting his good creation. It's adultery with a, with a sinful world, unfaithfulness to a loving father. <coughs> the Bible tells us that sin has brought a curse upon the whole of creation and that nothing short of recreation can, can put it right. Sin has broken this world, brought death, and separation between us and our Father in heaven, and the prospect of, of that being an eternal separation. There was no other way for God to deal with our sin than sending his son to suffer and die. That's what the cross says to us. Just think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest, the anticipation of what was to come made him sweat drops of blood as he prayed, not your will, uh, not my will, but yours. Sin is that serious. And I wonder this afternoon, have, have you faced up to the reality of, of your sin? How seriously do, do we take sin? The cross shows us how seriously God takes sin. But it shows us at the same time how much he loves us. How much he loves us. It may be that you're sat here this afternoon and, and you know full well the reality of your sinfulness. You're not trapped in a bubble of self-deception about it. You're painfully aware of, of your brokenness and shame and filled with regret at past choices. Well, here's the good news, this Good Friday. This is why it's Good Friday. As, as God looks at the sin and brokenness and mess in, in our lives, he doesn't turn away in disgust. He turns towards you in love to forgive to wash away the sin and the shame. The cross of Christ shouts how much we are loved by, 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 by our God. As Jesus is, is there in, in our place, taking our sin on himself, bearing the full weight of God's wrath and justice that, that we deserved so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made new, so that we can now freely enter into the holy of holies it it's done he's done it we're not on some kind of probationary period to see how we're getting on we are loved eternally he's not just some sort of indifferent cosmic killjoy out to to, to stop our fun the cross shows us the character of our god how he poured himself out to rescue us from the curse of sin why 
because he loves us. Because he loves us. He wants us to have life to the full. He wants us to have freedom and joy, the freedom and joy that we long for, but look for in all the wrong places. And he gave himself to forgive us and to make that possible. So how are you going to respond this Easter? Can I encourage you to take a leaf out of the centurion's book to look? to listen, to, 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 to read, to study the events of that first Easter time. And to ask the Lord, the now risen Lord Jesus to, to reveal himself to you and to turn to him asking for forgiveness and asking for him to be the rightful ruler in your life from here on in. We're, uh, we, we run a course um, several times a year called um, Hope Explored. You'll find a few flyers like this um, on the table at the back there. If you'd, it's a, it's a three session course that looks at gospel accounts, looks at the central truths of Christianity. Uh, if you'd be interested in, in coming along to, to one of those courses, do come and talk to me afterwards. Um, I can let you know a bit more about it. Uh, I'm going to read some verses from Hebrews as we pray, and then we'll sing our final song. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you so much for the good news that we have as Christians, that if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus, we can have confidence to enter the most holy place. Thank you for the full and free forgiveness and pardon that is ours because of what of, because of him pouring out his life for us. We pray that this Easter time, you would help us to carve out time and space to look through the gospels, to reflect on the Lord Jesus. Help us to see the reality of our sin. Help us to see the reality of your love for us that washes it all away. So, Father, please, by your spirit, would you show us that we are far worse than we can, that we think we are, but that the cross, your love, is far bigger than we can possibly imagine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.